Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Aimé Israel Pelletier, Professor and Head of French at the University of Texas at Arlington. She is the author of the new book on the Mediterranean and the Nile, The Jews of Egypt, published by Indiana University Press in 2018. Aimé, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. So first question, how did you come to write this book? So um, I wrote this book, uh, first of all, to figure out, to understand how Egyptian Jews living at a time of high nationalism around the 1950s and who were branded by Nasser as foreigners, enemies of the state, how these Jews thought of their identity. In other words, how they imagined their collective identity. I wanted to also understand how they processed the changes taking place in Egypt in the first half of the 20th century. What it was like for them, right, born and raised in Egypt, to feel that suddenly, like Moses felt, or so we're told, that they were foreigners in a foreign land. So I started there. I was born um, in Egypt, as were my parents and grandparents. And so listening to family and other Egyptian Jews describe what it was like to be a Jew in Egypt at that time, relying on my own memories and reading memoirs of individual experiences, I was able to piece together a general but obviously incomplete picture. So with this book, I wanted to draw a fuller picture give it more context. And I, if I can add this too, I wanted to address the claims made by some historians and other people, both in the US and in Egypt uh, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, that the Jews in Egypt were foreign elements who came to the country to enrich themselves. Basically, they were opportunistic. They sided with the colonial power with the British against Egypt, that they had shallow roots and didn't think of themselves as Egyptians. So these claims, as I argue in the introduction of my book, uh, and I illustrate throughout the book, have relied on national, uh, nationalist, anti-Zionist, and frankly, anti-Semitic narratives to advance this view. So What I try to do in my book is to bring to the fore, right, and to interrogate the writings of Egyptian Jews who actually lived through the crisis, lived through the sea change from liberalism to Arab nationalism. Uh, So I show in the book, I hope to have shown in the book, that Egyptian Jews were connected to Egypt by the bonds of history and of geography, their biblical past, and by their attachment to the culture 
both Arab and cosmopolitan. Uh, the attachment, their attachment to the people, the food, the language, the music, sights and smells, and the landscape of Egypt. My book also makes the point that their identity as Egyptians relies on an image that was formulated in the 1920s by what are often called Egyptian territorial nationalists by historians. And that and, and that was reflected also in the politics of the Waft movement. And what they did was that they saw, uh, as they tried to define the Egyptian character and identity, they saw Egypt as unique in the region, looked to its glorious pharaonic past to construct its identity. And that was after the independence, Egypt's independence from the Ottoman Empire and and at least initially its independence uh, from British rule. So they tried to construct a Mediterranean uh, and Nilotic uh, identity. And the Jews felt comfortable with um, this definition of the new Egypt. Um, and, and I think um, I, I could add some uh, here and um, to say what I feel my role is perhaps in treating that subject. Yep, go ahead. The Jewish, the Jewish community in Egypt was a very small uh, minority among many minorities. At its peak, right, in the 1940s, it numbered around 80,000. Today, there are fewer than 15 permanent residents. None of them are children. And the youngest, Magda Harun, the president of the Jewish community, is in her late 60s. Now, at one time, it was a vibrant and influential community, and it has for all intents and purposes, vanished. It leaves behind uh, priceless artifacts, synagogues. Some date back to the 12th century. Uh, they leave behind the community's registers and the second oldest Jewish cemetery in the world, the 9th uh, century Basatin Cemetery. All are in disrepair. Indications are that a few synagogues are receiving the protection of the Egyptian government, and some have been allowed to undergo restoration. So I consider my work, humbly obviously, as part of this restorative project, making known this community's rich intellectual, literary, and cultural production, both past and ongoing. Well, we might delve into uh, more of the substance of your book chapter by chapter. So your book's divided into five chapters, each covering a particular Egyptian Jewish writer. Uh, so you start with Jacques Hassoun. Tell us about him. So as you said, uh, the first chapter of my book opens with Jacques Hassoun because in a real sense, he spearheaded the movement in France that gave the Egyptian Jewish diaspora a sense of itself as a distinct community with a distinct history. He helped shape the narrative. He made explicit that narrative. 
the relation between Egyptian Jews and Egyptian Arab culture, so that Jewish-Egyptian identity becomes, in fact, inseparable from Egyptian identity, not only back to biblical, biblical times, but also, and importantly, transnationally, over the border, into the present, making it in a way transportable in France, Israel, and elsewhere. Because as he believed, and as he put it, and I quote him here, I am Jewish because I am Egyptian. I am Egyptian because I am Jewish. What makes Hassoun's work compelling is that he hones in on this essential relation between Jews and Egypt that is renewed from generation to generation. So who is Jacques Hassoun, right? Uh, For those who don't know him or haven't heard of him, he was a French psychoanalyst and a militant whose clinical practice focused on immigrant children and on children born in France to immigrant parents, not only from Egypt, but also from North Africa, Eastern Europe, and even transplants from the French countryside who'd migrated to Paris. In Egypt, Hassoun was imprisoned and expelled without his family. Uh, He was 18 years old, uh, accused of communist uh, activity. Uh, In France, he studied medicine in Montpellier and was active in several political organizations, including the Communist Party, which he didn't stick with for long. In May uh, 68, he joined the revolution and was instrumental in successful efforts to reform medical training in hospitals. He also led the charge to provide free psychological services in schools to young children, as well as in poor neighborhoods. So I was interested also, apart from this magnificent, uh, you know, um, bio, uh, there was what really Uh, drew me was that he was one of the first, really, to organize a return to Egypt. He led groups to Cairo and to Alexandria, starting in 1979, uh, when relations between Israel and Egypt uh, were on the right footing at the time. And he led these groups until his death in 1999 at the young age of 63. Uh, Some people on the trip were returning to an Egypt they remembered. Others had left young and remembered little or nothing at all. And still others had only heard about Egypt from parents and grandparents and were seeing it for the first time. So while in Egypt, uh, he took the group around uh, and reported uh, what he saw. And what he saw was what, what, what was most, most disturbing in what he saw was the disappearance of what he calls the erasure of Jewish presence. So that every trip back was made with the expressed purpose of, and I use his word here, restoring the connection between Jews and Egypt. So in the chapter, I also go over his work on identity memory, transmission, and language. I won't go through all of this here, um, but just to take maybe a few. 
um, his concept of identity. Um, the issue of one's identity, says Hassoun, comes into play, raises its head, and looms, in fact, large, only or usually only in times of crisis. That time, and I quote, when we're asked to identify ourselves, to state who we are. In other words, uh, the identity question is the harbinger of a crisis. Identity is not important until it is, and it often is, so we must be prepared at all times to confront it. So that's his take on identity. And the way we prepare ourselves, according to Hasu, the way we defend ourselves against this looming threat or ambush is by passing on to our descendants our heritage. He calls this act of self-defense transmission, la transmission. Transmission uh, consist, consists in the knowledge and experience or experiences that we pass on to others. Without it, individuals and communities are at risk of disappearing from history. His observations in clinical practice led him to believe that the most vulnerable children, and by extension, the most vulnerable communities, were those who didn't know their family history. So but, but let's keep in mind, Hassoun adds, that the only way, the only way that transmission succeeds is by keeping its content open to interpretation and modification, modification and interpretation by those who follow us, right? So transmission is a mechanism. It's also a drive designed to meet the needs of the individuals who receive it and who in turn will pass it on to others. This open feature of transmission accommodates both conscious and unconscious input. We don't always know what we pass on, he says, right? What has migrated along with our stories about ourselves and about the past. We have smuggled, he says, knowingly and unknowingly features of our past and of pasts before us. And that's how transmission becomes effective. Um, I'd like to touch on one more idea uh, on, uh, on Hassoun, if I might. And it's the question of the language or the languages that we use when we have more than one at our disposal. Hassoun knew three languages. He spoke uh, Arabic and he could write it. French, he wrote brilliantly and spoke flawlessly. He had, as, um, as many who knew him say, uh, he had a way with words. And, and I, can, I can absolutely uh, agree that he also has an exquisite style. He also knew Hebrew and read Hebrew. I believe he also wrote it. So about language, Hassoun argues that when we ask ourselves, to what language do I belong? What is my native language? We're actually asking a loaded question, a question filled with traps, both politically motivated and self-inflicted traps. 
it's not only a complicated question and a, and a question that many like him feel the pressure to answer for themselves and to answer for others, but it's also a bad or a wrong question. Because uh, the way he defines language or the way he sees it is that language is plural. It's not just in our words, right? It's in our gestures as well. He saw in his clinical practice that the choice of what language to use and when to use it was fraught with anxiety. Some individuals were so stuck on a language that the very thought of speaking another language made them silent, made them suffer. So in his work, he advocates for a less passionate investment in the languages we use. It seems odd, but he includes in that, um, in, in that uh, the mother tongue uh, or what passes for it. There is nothing that special about the mother tongue. In passing, if I may add, uh, if we have time, uh, I also point in this chapter, point out in this chapter, that Hassoun's relationship to French, the French language, right, differs differs from uh, that of Maghrebi French writers like uh, Abdelkabir Hatibi, with whom he had a long and interesting correspondence, um, and Tahar Ben Jaloun, for example, for whom the trauma of French colonialism is traceable in what they say about it and how they write. For Hassoun, on the other hand, even though French imposed itself imperially on him, he was able to imagine himself overpowering it with his style, doing with it what he wished. So, um, and then finally, I will say this word. I think his uh, Hassoun's work needs far more attention than I was able to to give it in the book. Uh, for one thing. For one thing, it really needs to be translated and added to the corpus of Jewish studies. It most definitely belongs there and would add a very important facet to it. So that's about Jacques Hassoun. So uh, in your next chapter, you discuss uh, Jacqueline Kahanoff. Tell us what you mean by um, Kahanoffian Levantinism. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you broke up. Uh, so in your next chapter, you discuss Jacqueline uh, Kahanoff. So if you could tell us a bit about what you mean by Kahanoffian Levantinism. I lay out the origin of the idea of Kahanoff's Levantinism and um, in the book, uh, and, and, I, and I use in particular the novel um, Jacob's Ladder, to show that even in 1951, when she was writing or when the book was published, uh, she interrogated what was meant uh, by that term. Uh, that term, of course, had a pejorative meaning um, uh, in the past before Kahanov and others as well, but the... Um, the pejorative meaning was um, was defined Levantinism as 
a Levantine person as a mix, as a mongrel, uh, a person who took on Western and Oriental customs and values and performed them poorly, right? So that in the end, he was ridiculous. The Levantine was ridiculous, corrupt, and dangerous to the so-called pure or idealized or homogeneous culture he used to forge this identity. Uh, Now, what Tahanov does um, is to to give us a positive turn to this, but to not do it in a simplistic way. For example, I think even though it's true to say that for Kahanov, um, uh, uh, Levantinism offers a different way of, um, or acknowledges a way of living together and celebrating differences and celebrating our capacity to borrow from each other. It is that, but it is also her, her my reading of her uh, uh, of her idea is that it is also more complicated and more knowing than than simply that. So what I argue is that rather than a theory that foresees, you know, or foreshadows the reality of intersectionality, Kahanov's Levantinism acknowledges first and foremost that ethnic, religious, and cultural differences are deeply rooted. And they are indissoluble and they are private, which doesn't mean that they can't be shared in public, but that doing so could be risky. So she offers, what she offers in her Levantinism, the way I understand it, is that it's an aesthetics far more than it is a system, right? A way, it is a way of doing things. It's an arrangement a way of preserving one's difference, one's ethnic particularities and such, while entertaining or hosting those of others. Uh, So another way of putting it, uh, Kahanov's flavor of Levantinism addresses others in their difference, establishes the importance of rootedness in community, and protects the separation of public and private, while at the same time encouraging open, neutral, and let's put it this way, decentered relational activities in the public sphere. So again, for me, as I read it, uh, her Levantinism is an aesthetics, an always provisional, personal, and experimental practice. So in chapter three, you discuss Edmund Jabez and his monumental book of questions. Tell us about this. So many readers took uh, Jabez's The Book of Questions as highlighting uh, Holocaust suffering, right? Um, That he spoke principally in this book of several volumes on the Holocaust or of the Holocaust. But Jabez, I argue, makes clear, both in the work itself and in interviews, that the Book of Questions highlights his own suffering and the suffering of his compatriots. And because 
to be Jewish is to be Egyptian, the Book of Questions is about the suffering in exile of all Jews. And that, of course, includes Jews during the Holocaust, of the Holocaust. So references to Egypt and to his compatriots, I argue in the, in the book, occupies a significant place in, in this work and in his subsequent works, um, where he asserts his belongingness and his attachment to Egypt, to the Nile, to the desert, and to the Mediterranean. Um, did I answer your question? Uh, yeah. You could, uh, you could either tell us a bit more about Edmund Jabez, or if you want to, we can move on to the next chapter. Um, I could add about Jabez, and it's um, it's um, it's an it's a idea that I um, treat in the book, and that I find very important because it is confirmed by other writers, and that's an- French anti-Semitism and his experience of it in France. Um, uh, so um, I I make a point of focusing attention on what he says about um, France in the book of hospitality. Uh, actually, his very last book, uh, it was published posthumously, um, where he, he makes a really moving tribute to the hospitality of Arab and Mediterranean peoples and sets that against the inhospitality of the French. So I, I, wanted to, I wanted to say that. His experience in France, like the experience of many uh, refugees who came to France, uh, was, was, was a difficult one, it was a poor one, um, a disappointing one. And we could move on to Paul Ajac, maybe? Yeah, sure. Paul Ajac um, wrote eleven novels to date, and the ten, the first ten, focused entirely on the Jewish bourgeoisie, mostly urban, and in Egypt, right? Um, as it processes the political sea change from uh, a liberal cosmopolitan Egypt to one who's turned its back on the Jewish community. The 10 novels are, uh, are on that subject. Uh, Jacques is an extraordinary writer, really, evocative and lively. Uh, her characters, both Jewish and Muslim, are not inclined, inclined to uh, stop the action and meditate. So we see them on the move and often disruptive. Um, And she analyzes these characters with a broad brush and a great deal of humor and warmth and truth. And yet we come to know them very well, inside and out. Um, Her narratives describe their everyday lives in Egypt, in France, and in Israel. We see them dealing with difficult circumstances in France and Israel, for example. Many of the first... um, many of them, right, hear for the first time about the Holocaust Um, and uh, her characters, right? Um, And 
and kind of resent the fact that the Holocaust has risked or eclipses uh, their own suffering. So Jacques doesn't um, often show her characters in the best light, far from that. But, but that is to say that her, her novels and her characters are complex. They have human interest and a truth value. And so I, I, recommend, I recommend them and I recommend that they too be translated. So far, uh, only one has. Um, I, I argue in the book uh, that um, her novels that are written in French, right, and for a broad French public, are works of resistance uh, constructed against a dominant narrative, the dominant, dominant narrative of perpetual Jewish exile and wandering. Because what she does successfully is to not only re-inscribe Jewish memory back into Egyptian history, but she inscribes forward into French culture the Egyptian Jewish community. She plants its ethnographical imprint, so to speak, in the soil of France, this way ensuring their survival transnationally. Uh, I can say that she was born in 1949 in Cairo, and that she's a novelist, uh, as I just explained, uh, a journalist and a radio producer. Uh, she lives, um, actually, she's a radio personality and lives in Paris. Um, apart from that, only that she lived in uh, Israel, that when upon leaving uh, Egypt in 1957, she lived on a kibbutz and was separated from her mother, who was trying to find uh, an arrangement before she could bring uh, her and her brothers uh, to Paris. So, Can I answer any questions? Um, so I think that we're just about out of time with the interview. So there is um, one last chapter that we didn't quite get to talk about. So listeners will have to um, pick up your book uh, if they um, want to find out a bit more. Um, but thanks for giving us um, such a fantastic and um, intriguing overview of um, some of these, I think, yeah, not-so-known figures, at least um, in the um, English language world. Uh, before we let you go, um, can we ask you a little bit about what you're working on next? Sure. Um, so. I'm continuing with a second volume of On the Mediterranean and the Nile that looks at Egyptian Jewish writers transnationally as they continue to draw on the Egyptian experience. In the past, I avoided working uh, from translations. I'm now ready to take the leap. Uh, I want to explore in depth Israeli writers like Orly Castel-Bloom and and the late Ronit Matalon. And of course, the Francophone material is keeping me busy at the moment. Fantastic. Um, well, that sounds um, like a really great yeah, continuation of this project. And we certainly hope to have you back on New Books in Jewish Studies uh, to discuss that um, after it's published. Um, so thanks very much for uh, being on the program. 
Um, so you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. Um, and with us today, we had M.A. Israel Pelletier, Professor and Head of French at the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, she talked to us about her new book on the Mediterranean and the Nile, The Jews of Egypt, published by Indiana University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening. Thank you.